trying to establish a ministry there. Things haven't quite worked out. Uh, send them an email to have them consider joining our staff here at Parkside Bible Fellowship. And I eagerly awaited a response. And when we got the response back, they were saying they are very interested. And we thank the Lord for that. It's not official yet, but we're still working on that. And uh, uh, without me saying anything more, Brennan's going to come and share some of this story and give us the Word of God today. And uh, Brennan, Stephanie, and kids, it's great to have you this morning. Oh, I, is there a children's church? Did I forget? There is. I'm sorry. So, kindergarten, yeah. Hi. Yeah. Uh, kindergarten through third grade. Yeah, I, I get all excited. Kindergarten through third grade can go off to children's church time. Very good. Thanks, Woody. Well, hello, everybody. Greetings from uh, from Russia, from Krasnodar Bible Church in Russia. They um, they they would love to be here on a Sunday morning to hear the singing, to uh, be fellowshipping with you guys, to experience what uh, what you guys get to experience. They they struggle and and things are difficult for them. And and uh, I know that some of them have been to the states. And I tell you, Stephanie and I, when we came here, when we got back into the states just two weeks ago, a little bit less than two weeks ago, we both just felt a a lightning. Uh, really in our spirits just um, we feel a, a freedom here that that we didn't feel over there there's there's a i don't know what it is i guess it's a spiritual lightness that uh, maybe maybe you guys don't sense but we sense it coming from the other direction and so we're excited to be here and we're really glad to be able to worship with you guys and some of the songs we sang today are songs that i've known for a long long time and um, it's just exciting to be with you guys so um, before i go any farther let's let's pray together Lord, we get to be your children. You make that offer to us. We don't deserve it. We never earned it, just like we never deserved or earned to be our own parents' children. Father, we uh, love the opportunities you give us. We love the life that you've given us. And we it's not always easy. Sometimes it's very painful. But we know that you are sovereign over it. We know that you're in control. And we take great joy from that and great comfort from that. Father, this morning as we... Uh, talk about kind of what our family has gone through over the last few months and how you, more importantly, how you shepherded us through that process. I just pray for your blessing. I pray for um, that this would be an encouragement to someone that that uh, the Lord they hear about, that, uh, that we get to know and uh, who takes care of us, that, that that Lord offers them salvation, offers them life uh, with him. So I just pray for open ears and open hearts today. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, it's 2010. Let's go back to 1994. November 1994, I was a student at Moody Bible Institute. And we had a missions conference. And November 1994, it was not long after the Soviet Union uh, evaporated, kind of dissolved. And so, a lot of missions things were just happening towards Russia. The door had just opened. There were a lot of opportunities. And so, I saw a video about Russia, about an opportunity to go to Russia for one year and teach Bible in their school system. And I thought, that's great. I love to teach Bible. It's a great opportunity to do it in Russia. And it's, it's always been neat to me that those who used to be our enemies, you know, the movie Red Dawn, I kind of grew up on that. They used to be the enemy, and now they're not the enemy. 
And so I, I just wanted to go, you know, and, and, and a minister there. And so that's what I wanted to do. So signed up for that. And long story short, Stephanie and I were there together from 1996 to 1997. And from that time, from the time we were on the flight, leaving Russia, coming back to the United States, I've had it in my heart to return, to go back to Russia. And I wanted to work in leadership development. I wanted to teach Bible. I wanted to disciple uh, young uh, leaders, Russian church leaders over there. And that's what I wanted to do. And so that's been my, my dream and my vision and my goal since we returned, 1997, that time frame. So go back to Chicago, finish a degree, start having kids, finish another degree, have some more kids. And uh, so all told, we spent nine years in Chicago together. Nine years. And that was, the, that was the dream ahead of us, to return to Russia, to return to Russia. That's what we always wanted to do, particularly me. That's what I wanted to do. Steph has a little bit different story. But she'd be glad to tell you, I'm sure. <clears throat> that was the goal that was before me. And it, it really, it captured my heart. It was something I really wanted to do. And there were times when I considered pursuing other options. And it seemed like the Lord always brought Russia back into, back into focus. And something else would come up to compete. And Russia would come back into focus each time. And so... That's been my dream since 1997. That's a long time. And so two degrees, four children, years of marriage, life in Chicago. And finally, we start fundraising, join up with East West, start fundraising. We're going to go to Russia. We go to Russia. And now we've been there three years, three years that we've been there. And as many of you know, probably all of you know, the visa situation for us has been very difficult from the beginning. The visa laws change frequently and you adjust to them. But it always means, it seems to always mean, that you're going to have to leave the country just this once, and you can get your new visa and come back in, and then it'll be a better situation when you get back in with this new visa. So we buy it, because we want to live there, and so we leave, and the first time uh, we had been there, well, I guess we left the country the first time, we'd been there six months, we went to Cyprus for two weeks, that was really tough, really tough. I won't complain about that one at all. And then five months later, we came back to the States and Canada, to get another visa, again, to renew the situation so we could be able to live in Russia. And we ended up spending, I spent six weeks in the States and Canada. My wife spent an extra three on top of that. Uh, she and Gabe's were here, and the, the girls and I went, went to Russia without her. Also, we could get this visa so we'd be able to live in Russia to do the work that we wanted to do there, do the ministry that we wanted to do. Then time passed again, and we ended up coming home in December 22nd of 08. We flew back, and we actually got into Fallon the 23rd. 24th, we hopped in a van and drove to Canada. And uh, we spent five months total in the U.S. and Canada that time. Again, exact same thing, trying to get this new visa because they changed the laws. You flex with the laws, get the new visa, go back. So that's what we've been trying to do, trying to do, trying to do, because I've had this goal before me, and I've been certain that this is God presenting this to me. This is God grabbing my heart and taking me to Russia to work in missions there. I've been certain of that. In fact, I'm still certain of that, that that's what, that's what he was doing. That's what he wanted to do. So in, uh, I told people in the first hour, I told, they kept asking questions that would want to bring up explanations of how we transitioned from that being my, my goal, my Christian lifelong goal, to now coming back to Nevada. How in the world does that all work out? And, and uh, you know, am I schizophrenic? Is something wrong in my head? Or, or, or maybe I'm bitter to be back? Or, or maybe, I, maybe I'm disappointed with that or this or whatever. Well, I want to explain how it all worked out. In February, okay, when, when we returned to Russia last, uh, in May of 09, yeah, May of 09, we returned to Russia, 
we got this visa that was good for a year. Didn't have to leave the country for a whole year. And we thought, that's great. That's just awesome. And at the end of that year, we were going to have to, uh, we would be able to renew in-country, stay in Russia and continue to work there for another year. So that would put us, you know, into, into this sometime this year or next year. And this would be able to, the, this process would go on. It'd be easier to live there. We thought we had found the way finally to be able to live there. But turns out that there was some decision made by the Russian authorities that no, the visa that we were supposed to be able to renew in-country without having to leave, they weren't going to give us anymore. We, well, we were going to have to leave and, they, and, and renew it. So we thought, well, we have to leave, but we're still going to get that one-year visa against me. Great, we'll be able to go back. So we bought it and we left and we went to Turkey because it's cheap to live in Turkey compared to somewhere else in Europe that we would go. So we went to Turkey and we thought, all right, we're going to be there for a month. That's a long, long time to be in an apartment in a strange city, but it's a month. You can do it. You can hold your breath for that long, right? You can make it happen. So we go there thinking it's going to be a month and we're touring around seeing the sites and all this kind of stuff. And then we get this email saying, okay, the one-year visa that you were waiting for, you're not going to be able to get it. They're just not going to give it this year. Not going to happen. And so we'd been there a couple weeks by that time. And so we got this news and we thought, wow. Well, again, they, you know, the bait and switch, they did the exact same thing that they always do. All right, well, we'll get a different visa, a different kind of visa. Well, it turns out the only other kind of visa we could get is a three-month visa. So that means you go into Russia for three months and then you leave again. You get another three months, go back in and keep doing that. So four times a year, you leave the country for a minimum of two weeks each time. Take your family in and out, all the expense, all the agony of that, the interruption to ministry, all that kind of stuff. So we started contemplating that and, uh, not long after we heard about the opportunity for that three-month visa, we heard that, well, you can get the three-month visa, but it, there's a minimum 30 or a 21-day waiting period, 20-day waiting period, actually. I don't know why 20 days, not 21, but a 20-day waiting period to get a letter of invitation to be able to start this process. So basically a delay. There's, yeah, there's going to be a delay. Well, okay, that's not, not fun. So all this time, these, we keep hearing these negative things, these bad things that are, that are going to be happening. And the visas are, you know, taken away from us again and again. And so this whole time, Stephanie and I are talking. And again, we went to Turkey with the full understanding that in one month, we're going to get our visas and return to Russia. We'll be there for a year. That's where God wants us. That's where we're going to be ministering. We're going back to Turkey or we're going back to Russia, period. So that, that was where our mindset was. And it wasn't just determination. We really thought God's doing things there. There are opportunities for us. This is the place we want to go. Well, when these, you know, opportunities kept getting taken away from us and delays and further expenses and more time in Turkey and less time in, in Russia. That whole process was happening. Stephanie and I started thinking, wow, you know, what, what's going on? What, what's the Lord doing? Maybe it's just difficult and it's just a trial and we need to persevere. We need to press through this and out the other end, we'll, we'll see blessing. And this is how we honor God is by doing what we said we were going to do, what we've been called to do, pressing through and making this happen. Well, maybe. But then we started thinking about the cost to our family. The financial cost is enormous. It's, it's just enormous. So I, I, won't, I won't kid you guys, and you know about that. You've been very generous in meeting these financial needs of ours. So I'm thinking, do, do we really want to spend that much money to go into the country, out of the country, to be living somewhere in Europe or Turkey or wherever for a month at a time, two weeks at a time? Do we really want to do that? Well, that's a big expense. Uh, possibly. I don't know. Another question was the expense, the emotional expense to our family. You, you guys know about instability, especially military families that move a lot. There's a lot of instability, and your friends are all taken away. Everything's taken away. Well, for our family, it was similar to that, but our home was always in question. We weren't sure where we were going to live. We weren't sure who we were going to be with. 
who are our, who are our friends going to be? What, what, which of our friends weren't going to be able to make it back in this time? And so it was a real, you know, it's a real question. It's a real weight to think about how, how much sacrifice our kids are making by being so transient. And this is all the time. And their, their friends move away. And it's difficult to make relationships. And it's hard for them. And then factor in school, homeschooling. You know, we're trying to homeschool this whole process. And so we have a whole suitcase, basically, that we take to Turkey with us that's just homeschool stuff, you know, just books, so that Stephanie can try and school, homeschool the kids in this little moldy apartment that we were living in in Turkey. So all those, all those things started factoring in. We thought, well, you know, if the Lord wants us to push through those things, you know, you, you kind of weigh how much sacrifice is too much to require from your family to minister. You know, and that's, that's, that's different for each person to make that decision. We thought, well, we don't know. Well, then we started thinking about ministry in Russia and what actually was going on. What sorts of things were we actually doing, being able to accomplish? And beyond that, what kind of a situation is the Russian church leadership in? And can they maybe carry on this work without us? And maybe, maybe we're actually, our continued presence there is sort of a crutch to some of these people that need to be take, stepping up and taking leadership and taking ownership themselves. They need to be finding ways to finance their own projects, to think up their own projects and execute their own projects with their own people. They need to be doing their own thing, not relying on us just because that's the way it's been done for the last 15 or 20 years. And so you start weighing all those things together and then, you know, more visa problems coming along. And we, we got to the point where we thought, you know, Lord, you might be closing the door for us in Russia. You really might be. And we both got to the point where that's okay. It's okay if he's closing the door. We'll move on to the next thing. And which, which is amazing for me, and Steph will, will attest to this, that I've had my eye fixed on it for years, almost 15 years I've had my eyes fixed on this. And for the Lord to, to walk us through those things, to get to the point where, Lord, if you, if you take this away, if you close the door in Russia, that's okay, was a big deal, a big deal for me. And so... It was at that time that we were at that balance point of we're not sure, we're not sure. Lord, what, what are you doing? What are you going to do? What do you want for us? That's the time we heard from Woody. And that's the time we heard from Parkside about the possibility of coming and being with you all and serving here. And for both of us, well, for Steph, it was immediate. She thought she had been waiting for Parkside to write. And why isn't Parkside writing? Did they forget about us? <laughs> we're stuck over here in Turkey. And, you know, does the Internet not work? Or, you know, or what's, what's the problem? And, and then we heard, and we both just, wow, that, that's huge. That's a huge opportunity for us. And especially when the Lord took us from a place where we were so committed to what we were doing to back us out of that, bring us to a place of equilibrium like this, and then present another opportunity. Had, I'll tell you this. Had Woody written a week earlier, I would have responded immediately and said, thanks, Woody, for the offer. That's super encouraging, but no. That's just evidence of the Lord's timing. Had he written earlier, I just would have told him no. But he didn't. He wrote when the Lord told him to, and the Lord had been working in our hearts so that we were prepared to hear that. And it was, instead of no, Woody, it's, wow, Woody, that's, uh, that's interesting. That's really interesting. I'd like to talk about that. So that's how our mind, well, my mind, I'll speak for myself, that's how my mind went from February going to Turkey, we're certainly returning to Russia, to now where I'm standing here in front of you. We're not pursuing any further visas in Russia. We're not trying to get back there. 
We packed everything we own. Imagine this. Everything we own fit in 11 suitcases and seven carry-ons. Everything. I had a library of like, I don't know, great, great books. I, I had a great library. Didn't bring it back. But I did bring back my mandolin. And I don't know why. I don't play it. <laughs> I want to. I brought it back. But it's lighter, I guess. But we fit everything in 11 suitcases and came home. Because the Lord had convinced us, he had walked us through this process to, to get to this point where we, are, where we are in our thinking now. And so what I want to talk to you guys about today is how in the world I dealt with that loss. Many of you have probably had a goal, a dream. You've had a, a target in your mind for a long time of what you're going to do. And this is what you're going to do. You're going to make it happen. You think it's from the Lord. The Lord gave you this vision. This is, this is your goal. You've had it for a long time. I had it for, give or take, 15 years. This is what I wanted to do. And I invested a lot in it. My family went through a lot. I made my family go through a lot to pursue this. So that's gone. That dream is gone. What do I do with that? How did I process through that? And I'll tell you, it was not easy. And I can talk about it easily now because the Lord has taken us through this process. But while we were in the middle of it, it was painful. And I just thought, Lord, why would you do that? Why would I spend all those years preparing, fundraising and all that stuff, take my family through all that stuff, spend years learning the language so that now I can speak Russian, have a conversation, no big deal, speak from up here in Russian to have it taken away? What am I supposed to do with that? And there was a time when it wasn't easy. That time wasn't too long ago. It wasn't easy at all. Steph and I were trying to work through this. Well, Lord, should we just stick it out in Russia and make it happen? Maybe we should stick it out. Well, a brief description, very brief description of our apartment in Turkey. It had two bedrooms. That's what they said. It's actually, one was a balcony that uh, was constantly wet because the walls were sweating and the paint was real, a little bit wet. So actually we ruined some clothes because the kids would bump the wall and come back and they've got big old white spots on their pants that wouldn't wash out and whatever. Mold on the walls and just uncomfortable. There were no real chairs to sit in. The rooms were oddly shaped. It was just a weird little apartment. And the four of us, are, or the six of us are stuck in there. And, uh, you know, the weather was bad at first and whatever. So we're sitting. Steph and I would sit on our bed. We'd make, make a cup of coffee. We would, because they had Starbucks, so we would buy Starbucks. And <laughs> turkey's not all bad, I'll tell you. And we would, we would make a cup of coffee and we would sit there on the bed. After we had done our own devotions, we had done our own reading and praying, and we'd probably prayed together and, you know, just different things. But we would sit there, and this is how we'd pass our time, drinking our coffee and asking each other, so what, what's God showing you about this? How in the world do we think about this? What do we do? What does God want us to do? And you're, I mean, have you, have you ever just opened your Bible and just said, God, what do you want me to do? And just flipped, and you're wondering, where, where do I read and whatever? That's where we were. So Stephanie was reading uh, Oswald Chambers, My Utmost First Highest. That's what she was reading. And I was reading through the book of Genesis. And so it was amazing how God lined those things up just randomly, his random, he just lined him up so that he was telling us, he was giving us a message. And we would talk. It was like we had sat in and taken notes on the same class. We had read separately, in separate books, in separate everything. I, I, I want to tell you a little bit of what he showed us, what he walked us through. I want to talk real briefly about Abraham. 
First of all, Abraham. What's the first thing, one of the first things we learn about Abraham? Of course, we, we learn that his, who his dad was. That's right after the flood. But if you turn to Genesis 12, the Abrahamic covenant. I'm just going to read verses 1 and 2. Now the Lord said to Abram, that's Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you. And I'll tell you what, for four years, we have felt like Abraham. We felt just like him. Go to a land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, etc. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And all the families of the earth, you should be blessed. I will make of you a great nation. Well, Abraham didn't have kids. How's God supposed to make, make a nation of him? Well, probably kids, through kids, right? His family is going to grow. So he has that promise from, this is God speaking directly to, to Abram. And he tells him, I will make of you a great nation. Okay, great. Abraham was 75 at this time. So man, God was going to give him a son. And so what does Abraham do? Well, he lives his life. He goes to Canaan. He obeys. He does all that stuff. He disobeys quite a bit. And he's, he's waiting for the son. And he's waiting for the son. And he's still waiting. And after a while, he comes to God and he says, all right, um, God, what are we going to do here? I, I guess it's going to be Eliezer of Damascus who's going to be my heir. And that's who you're going to start the nation through, uh, through him, right? Because he was a member of the household somehow. He wasn't his child. He was some relative or an in-law or something like that. But Eliezer of Damascus. And God says, no, it's not going to be Eliezer of Damascus. It's going to be one of your own children. It's going to be the, the son of promise. All right, God, you said so. He's getting older. His wife's getting older. Time goes on. And then what happens? Then Sarah can't have children, so she gives Hagar. And who's born? Who? Ishmael. All right, now, Abraham says, all right, hey, this is my own son. This is biologically my son. All right, God, here, may Ishmael live before you. May he be the one that you build a nation through. God says, no, it's not going to be him. So Abraham's thinking, what in the world? He has been promised by God that he will have a son. And it's not until he's 100 years old that he finally has Isaac. 100 years old. He had to wait 25 years knowing what God was going to give him. So I just think about that dream that he had, and he sees himself getting older and his wife getting older, what, what must he have thought? What must have gone through his mind? I don't know, but that's a, that's a big, not loss, because in the end he, he, he got the son. But that's a big trial. That's a difficult time. So I read about Abraham. I was encouraged by him. I thought, well, he went through a similar thing. He had to wait till he was 100 years old before God fulfilled this promise to him. Uh, you know, we spent two and a half months in Turkey. That's not quite the same. Next, Isaac. Abraham's son, Isaac. He had... Isaac had two sons. Do you remember who they were? Jacob and Esau, or Esau and Jacob, right? All right, so be turning to Genesis 27, if you would. So that tells the story of, you know, Isaac's getting older, and he, he, he can't see very well. His eyes are going dim, so he's going blind. He can't even tell his sons apart when they walk into the room. Which one are you? Are you the big muscly guy or are you the little scrawny guy? He can't tell, all right? He just knows someone walked in. So, um, first of all, Jacob had already weaseled the, uh, the birthright 
out of, out of Esau, right? He made a trade because Esau was so hungry he was going to die. Well, give me a birthright. Well, what good is a birthright if I die right now? Give me some soup. So he gave him some soup, took his birthright. So he weaseled, weaseled him out of the birthright, all right? So he's got that, first of all. Well, then now later on, so Isaac's old. He's blind. He can't hardly see. And Jacob's mom hears that, that Isaac wants Esau to go out and hunt for him and make him some of that great stew that he makes because he's really hungry. And then he's going to give him his blessing. This is the final blessing he's going to give him. This is his pronouncement of his blessing upon his heir. All right? That's what he does. So Jacob's mom hears about that. Esau, obediently, runs off, you know, with his bow, and he's going to go hunting. And so Jacob, he starts whipping, you know, he goes and kills a, a lamb or whatever, and he comes and he whips up dinner, and he brings it to him and comes in, and he does this whole trick with, you know, he's got, he's got animal skins on his arms, so he's hairy, and he's, he's wearing his brother's clothes, so he smells like the, you know, the field and whatever, this kind of stuff to trick his dad. And it takes a while, but finally his dad is tricked, and then what does Isaac do? He blesses, he gives this blessing that's supposed to go to his heir, he gives it to Jacob. So what Isaac wanted was to bless his oldest son. That's what he really wanted. And just to show how into this Isaac was and how important it was to him, Genesis 27, we start reading in verse 32. So now Jacob has taken the blessing and he's run away, just like he does. Esau walks in obediently. He's done everything his dad asked. He walks in and says, hey, dad, I have dinner. And his father, uh, Isaac, said to him, who are you? And he said, I'm your son, your firstborn, Esau, the one you sent out to get dinner. Then Isaac trembled very violently. So this really, really rips Isaac off. Trembled very violently. Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came, and I've blessed him. Yeah, and and he will be blessed. So Jacob stole the blessing right right out from under Isaac, right off of Esau. And this really upset Isaac. So he had this goal. He had this thing he wanted to do for his son. And his other son steals it. So he's had his his dream crushed too. The thing he wanted to have was taken away. Well, now we read a little bit about Jacob. And don't turn to Genesis 29 because it would be the whole chapter. But remember the whole story of how Jacob got a a wife. He goes off to his families and he he sees this girl. He he really wants to to marry Rachel. And um, excuse me. Yeah, Rachel. He wants to marry Rachel, and he makes this whole deal with her dad that he's going to work for seven years if he can have her. So he works and all this, and he loves her. And it's the day, you know, the days flew by like nothing, you know, and the year, years were gone. And seven, seven years later, and, and it was no big deal, and he goes to get married. And what, is, what does the dad do? Bait and switch. Switcheroo, right? So he gets Leah, you know, with the, the he says something about her eyes. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know quite what it means, but he didn't like her. He, he wanted the other sister, but the other sister was younger. So the father-in-law pulled the bait and switch. And so here, Jacob had worked seven years, and he had made his father-in-law wealthy. He had worked hard, and he had had this goal. I'm going to marry her. This is going to be my wages for what I'm doing. I, I get to marry her. That's, that's her. I love this. I'm excited about this whole deal, so much so that working seven years flew by like nothing. And then he gets there, and poof, it's stolen from him. Well, Jacob's not done. Jacob's story continues. Turn to, to Genesis 37, if you would. Jacob had numerous children, numerous sons, and his favorite was Joseph, right? Joseph was his favorite. He was the second to last. Benjamin was born after him. He was the, the, 
his favorite one. He was the one, he, you know, put this uh, coat of many colors or whatever. We don't really know what the adjective is there. Uh, we, we don't know it. We don't run across it anywhere else in the entire world of any language. So we don't know what it is. It should, could be a short sleeve coat, long sleeve coat, long coat, short coat, multicolored. I don't know where we came up with multicolored. Technicolor dream coat. I don't know. It could be. It fits as well as anything else. So he has this favorite son. And, and uh, what happens to this favorite son? He's got all kinds of sons. And his favorite one, what happens to the one son? Well, his brothers take him and throw him in a pit and do all kinds of other things to him. Anyway, it comes back that Jacob finds out he thinks he's dead. My favorite son out of all. He thinks he's dead. Well, let's read in, in chapter 37 of Genesis. And let's read, I'll read starting in verse 32. So remember, they had thrown him in the pit. And then they sold him away, and then they took his cloak, and then they, they killed an animal and rubbed the animal's uh, blood on it so that it would, and tore it up, and so it looked like he got torn up. And so they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father. This is the brothers doing that. And they said, This we've found. Please identify whether it's your son's robe or not. Sounds very judicious for a bunch of uh, brothers like they were. And he identified it, and he said, It's my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. So here's Jacob's response, verse 34. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son in mourning. So thus his father wept for him. He wanted to die. He thought he was going to die because he was so heartbroken that all of his dreams and everything he had tied up in his favorite son, all gone because the son's dead. Well, then think about Joseph. If you think about the same story from Joseph's perspective, Joseph starts off, he's the favorite kid. His dad loves him. He's got this great coat, whatever kind it is. His dad loves him. He starts having these dreams. God is giving giving him these dreams where his family's going to bow down to him, all, you know, the stars, the sun and the moon and the stars, and and all this, you know, the sheaves are bowing down, all this. It's great. You know, he has great expectations. He thinks awesome stuff is going to happen. These are his expectations. And they were visions from God. So he had a right to think he had these great expectations. I think he took it a little too far. But nevertheless, that's what he expected. And that's what his dream was. And that's what he pursued. And what ends up happening? Well, he ticks off his brothers again and again and again. So finally, they throw him in a pit. And then they sell him into slavery. And then so he's, he's working as a slave. And then he gets falsely accused and convicted of attempted rape and thrown in prison great expectations so again his hopes are just dashed they're broken his dreams are crushed okay so that's it for genesis so stephanie and i are i'm reading about this and stephanie and i are talking and these are the kind of things i'm hearing i'm I'm reading these things and i thought you know uh the lord is sovereign even over these horrible situations and their situations are much worse than ours he's sovereign over these got to thinking about moses and moses You know, he was going to take the people out of Egypt. He accomplished that, no problem. He receives the law from God. He teaches them, okay, this is how you build a tabernacle. This is how you set up everything. This is how we break into this and that and the other. And he lines the whole thing out. And he's he's got them all ready and prepared. And they're going to go into the promised land. And what happens? There's this rock at Meribah. And God tells him, they'd been there before, by the way. The first time he struck the rock. And that was fine. That's what God told him to do. The second time, God said, speak to the rock. And water will come out to to give water to uh, the people of Israel who are complaining and whining because they don't have water in the desert. Speak to the rock. 
So for whatever reason, and I don't know why, Moses picks up his staff and whack, he whacks the rock, he hits it. Well, God opens the rock up, water comes out, people get water. And what does God say to Moses? Well, let's read it. Eh, I won't read it. It's all, all he says to him is, Moses, because you didn't treat me as holy, because you didn't obey me, you will never get into the promised land. So Moses has done all this work, taking the people out, and he's poised and ready, and they're all ready to go in, getting the last things in order, and let's just get the people there and go in. I'm sorry, Moses. Because of your sin, because you didn't treat me as holy, because of your disobedience, you don't get to go in. Someone else is going to take the people in for you. So that's a huge dream crushed. That's an expectation that he had that that was not met. God said, nope, it's not going to happen. Not going to happen. So that's Moses. Two more. First of all, David. Turn to 1 Chronicles uh, 17, if you would. 1 Chronicles 17, we'll talk about David. I'm going to start in verse 1, and I'm going to read the first four verses. 1 Chronicles 17, verse 1. Now, when David lived in his house, so David had a house. He'd been at war. He'd been exiled. He'd been all kinds of stuff. Well, now David lives in his house. And David said to Nathan, the prophet, Behold, I dwell in a house of cedar. I've got this nice place. But the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under a tent. That didn't seem right to David. He wanted to do something about it. He wanted to build a house. That's obvious. Nathan said to David, okay, that's a great idea, David. Do all that's in your heart, for God is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, it is not you who will build a house, build me a house to dwell in. So he doesn't let him. This is what David wants to do. And again and again, we see it, that David... David's buying property to build this thing on. He's, he's getting all the, all the equipment necessary ready, all the materials and all that kind of stuff, drawing up plans and everything for the temple. He's getting it all ready. He wants to build a temple for God, and God says no. This is what he wanted to do, and he just wouldn't, wouldn't let him do it. Well, then let's flip over to uh, 1 Chronicles 22. God said he had another one that he was going to have build it. Well, that other one was Solomon. And so in 1 Chronicles 22... David starts commissioning Solomon and, and telling him, God bless you, go do it. So David said to Solomon, my son, I had it in my heart to build a house to the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me saying, you have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name because you've shed so much blood before me on the earth. So, He's told no. It's going to be Solomon. Solomon's your son. He'll live in days of peace. He'll have rest and he'll build it. So David, who's, remember, who's, who, whose heart was fully committed to the Lord, was not allowed to do that. That's all he wanted to do is build this temple. Couldn't do it. Wasn't allowed. All right. Last man we'll talk about. Flip to Acts, please. Acts chapter 16. And again, this is what God's showing us in our daily reading or in our conversation. Because I was seeing this pattern develop in Genesis of all these different guys who had 
had their dreams removed, their hopes removed, their plans just broken. And Steph says, well, what about Moses? What about David? What about Paul? Actually, this was an email. Interesting. A supporting church of ours. We've never met these people. have never really corresponded. We send them emails, but we never get responses from a church in Florida. And we sent out our email saying, it looks like God may be closing the doors in Russia. And this guy writes, and this is the passage he writes. He said, that made me think of Acts chapter 16 when you wrote. First time, we, only time we've ever heard from him. I haven't heard from him since there. All right. Acts chapter 16, verses 6 through 8. We're going to stop midway through the paragraph here, and I'll, you'll see why in a little bit. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia. So those are two regions in Turkey. Having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia, which is another region, uh, region in Turkey. There's a region there at that time. It's not wasn't called Turkey then, but nowadays Turkey. Uh, you've got this other region called Asia. So having been, uh, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they'd come up to, My- to Mycenae, which is another region, they attempted to go into Bithynia, yet another region, all in Turkey. All this is in Turkey, not far from us. We could have driven there in a couple of hours. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So, passing by Mycenae, another region, they went down to Troas. And let's stop reading there. So, what does Paul want to do? He's on his second missionary journey. He's already visited some other churches in, in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. He's already visited them, churches he'd been at before. So he's just encouraging them. He's teaching them. He's, he's training them, working with them. Well, now he wants to go to these new regions, these other regions that are very, various places around, uh, usually, typically central Turkey there is where most of them are. He wanted to travel around and preach the gospel. It sounds like a great idea, right? We would pay money to do that, right? To send someone to go do that. We would, we would want to do that. We would join up. We would make sacrifices to go do that. That's a worthy goal. It's a worthy dream. It's what he wanted to do. And again and again in each of those places, the Spirit said, nope, nope, I won't let you. I won't let you. And I'm sure Paul's thinking, hey, I just want to preach the gospel. And this isn't the government stopping him. We, we don't know what the circumstances were. But the way the writer of Acts understood it, it was the Holy Spirit stopping him, not allowing him to continue and do what he wanted to do. So we heard about that. And uh, we read it when, the, when our pastor friend emailed it to us. And I thought, you know, this fits right into what God is showing us. What he's showing us every day. What to do with my dream. I'd been pushing after Russia for 15 years. This is my dream. This is what I've sought after. This is my goal. This is what I'm going to accomplish. This is what I'm going to do. And this isn't just that I wanted to. I really felt like I saw from various different angles and had confirmation from certain people that God wanted us to go to Russia. This is what he wanted us to do. So... This is my dream. This is my thing that I've had before me that I've been pursuing. And here it's being taken away. How do I deal with that? That's a lot of loss. That's a lot of loss. You know what? I don't want to go into it too much, but I guess it's really important to a man what he does. What he does is important to him, right? I've, I've done some things. I've done not telemarketing, but telephone surveys. And I tell you, you know, it makes, it makes some money, but it just kills your soul to do something like that. It, Unless you want to. I don't know. Maybe somebody wants to. I didn't. I just did it to, to pay some bills. I've done all kinds of things to, just to pay bills. And I really was finally looking forward to something that I could invest my soul in and say, this is, this is what I do. I don't just work at Starbucks. I don't just, I'm not just a legal videographer somewhere or a telemarketing whatever. This is who I am. This is, this is what I do, right? It's important to men, right, what they do. 
Well, it was gone. It was lost. So I was reading about all these men. If you think about all of them, they all had their own plans and their own hopes and their own dreams that they had out there. They wanted to do great things. And even Abraham had a promise saying, you will do this great thing. And it just wasn't happening and wasn't happening and wasn't happening. So their plans and their dreams didn't work out the way they had hoped. And I'm sure they were frustrated and a little disappointed. We see that Isaac trembled very violently. He was so ripped off about this, so angry that his blessing had been stolen. So he wasn't just disappointed. He was furious. And they maybe all wondered, what in the world is God doing? So when I was in Turkey, we were all in Turkey, but I'm talking about myself. When I was in Turkey and I was beginning to realize that I might be losing this dream, this lifelong dream that I had had, might be losing it, something encouraged me as I read about each of these men. With each of these men, we can see now, as we look back at the whole picture, not the small little microcosm, but the whole picture, we look at the whole picture now, we can see that God had a much larger plan that he was doing. And it, it, it required a removal of what was their dream. Think about Abraham. Through all of his years of waiting for the son that God promised, what did he do? He, he, he gets this vision from God and he's back at home. He goes all the way over to Canaan. So he moves in. He does all this stuff. He's, he's testifying to the Lord. And of course, he's got his, you know, he's calling his wife, his sister, so he doesn't get in trouble. He does that twice. Can't believe he did that twice. But he does it twice. But as you see his life progress, he's getting more and more faithful to where at the end of his life, How do you know? He demonstrates just exactly how much he loves and trusts God. He takes this son that he waited 25 years to get up onto a mountain, and he's willing to offer him because God said so. That's how much he trusted. So he went from a place where, you know, he's saying, no, this is my sister. Ignore the wedding ring, you know. It's fine. You can date her. Just don't kill me. He goes from that to being willing to sacrifice his son if God says so. So he he grew in faithfulness and he learned that God himself is faithful. He's faithful in the long haul and you can count on him. That's what Abraham learned. What about Isaac? Well, when, uh, when Jacob and Esau's mom was pregnant with the twins and they were doing battle in there, she had a, she had a, the word of the Lord came to her. And the Lord said, there are two nations in there and the younger is going to rule over the, the older And the older is going to serve the younger. So there's this promise that doesn't make any sense until the circumstances happen where Jacob comes in and steals it right out from under Esau. It doesn't make any sense until that time. And all of a sudden, now you understand the younger has tricked the older out of the birthright. So he's got the inheritance. And then he steals the blessing. So now he's got the blessing to the heir from his father. He's got everything that his brother should have had doesn't make any sense until that happens. God was working in a larger picture. You think about Jacob and Joseph. Jacob thought that his favorite son, Joseph, was dead for all those years. All those years he thinks he's dead. And he's mourning him. And now he pays special attention to Benjamin because he didn't want to lose him like he lost Joseph. So he treats him in a special way and, and kind of, you know, protects him and whatever. So, of course, what really happened to Joseph was his brother sold him into slavery and all that stuff. He ends up in prison. Well, then he ends up becoming the prime minister of Egypt. And of course, you all know the story. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people live because Joseph was thrown into a pit, sold into slavery, convicted of rape, and then raised to prime minister. And now thousands live. And let's, let's read that in, in uh, Genesis chapter 50. Famous verse, famous verse, you all know it. 
Genesis 50, verse 20. After all that had happened, and all the stuff that happened to Joseph, this is his summary. Verse 20, as for you, my brothers, who did all this to me, you meant evil against me. You really meant to sell me away, and you hoped I would never come back. At first, they wanted to kill him. But God meant it for good, to bring, about, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So he understood clearly that even though each of those little steps and years in his life were extremely painful, betrayal, he's locked up in prison, he's accused of rape. And now he says it all makes sense. It all makes sense. You meant it for evil. You tried to kill me. One of the brothers wouldn't let you do that, so you sold me. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Look at all these people who are alive because of what you did to me. There's a larger picture going on. Let's turn back to Acts 16, and this is where I want to This is the last passage we'll turn to. Back to Acts chapter 16. Let's finish what Paul, what happened with Paul. So they go to all these different regions. In Turkey, they're trying to preach the gospel and the Holy Spirit won't let him. That makes no sense. I want to preach the gospel and the Holy Spirit says no. What? Doesn't make any sense at all. That's what we're supposed to be doing, right? All right. Acts chapter 16, verses 9 and 10. All right. So he's gone down to Troas, starting in verse 9. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Not here where we've been trying, but to them. So if you think about it, I pulled the map out and I thought, what? I tried to figure all this stuff out. Well, the best sense I can make of it is that Paul, you know, Paul's first missionary journey was in, was in Turkey. His second missionary journey was, was in Turkey and would have continued to be in Turkey because he was going to visit these, all these different uh, Mycia and Bithynia and all these different places in Turkey. His ministry would have continued there. That's what he was going to do, but God wouldn't let him. God wouldn't let him. So he goes down to Troas, which is a port city, and God says, take the gospel to Macedonia, which is where? What continent? Europe. Europe, which would become a center for Christianity for the next almost 2,000 years. So that's how the gospel got pushed from Asia Minor where Paul was looking. Paul had a great dream. God was doing something different. And he moved him out of there and he moved him into Europe. And so now the gospel goes into Europe. And then you get Europe being a center for the gospel for the next almost 2,000 years. God knew what he was doing. He was painting a larger picture. And I'm sure it was miserable for Paul. It was frustrating for Paul. And he thought, "I, I don't even know anymore. I'm trying to preach the gospel and God won't let me. It doesn't say what he thought. But he kept traveling around, going to these different places, didn't he? Trying to do it, and God wouldn't let him, so he sends him over. So this this dream that Paul had, this small one, God overlooks that one and gives him this much larger one. And you have this huge picture painted where now it makes sense. Paul should probably go into Europe. That's a really good idea for Paul to go into Europe. Martin Luther comes out of that. I mean, this is, you know, John Calvin, you get... This is good stuff that comes out of this. All right, Europe. Most of us come from Europe. All right. So I'm encouraged that God knows what he's doing. He has this larger picture that he's painting. And I'm encouraged that he's painting that larger picture in our lives also. We're sitting there in our little moldy apartment in Turkey and frustrated and angry and even getting tired of coffee. And uh, God, what are you doing? And we kept reading about these guys and hearing their stories, and seeing that it didn't make sense to them either. 
But it makes sense when you look back at the larger picture. And it was frustrating and hard for them. Look back at the larger picture and it makes sense. And I thought, you know, it's frustrating now. It was then. It's not, it's not today. It was when we were sitting in our little moldy apartment. It was frustrating. But we started looking for a larger picture and thinking, you know, Lord, you're doing something. You're doing something. We don't know what it is. And that's why our expectation was, God, what are you going to do? What are you doing? And it was a great place for us to be. It was a great place for us to be in our hearts. For a very long time, it's been my dream and my goal to serve God in Russia. And we were only there for three years. But then God moved us away. And I was frustrated and I was disappointed in certain ways. I didn't get to do what I had my heart set on doing for 15 years. But then I look at these guys in the Bible and I start seeing this larger picture develop. And I start seeing that God really knows what he's, what he's doing. I don't know what, it, what he's doing right now. I don't, I don't see the larger picture. I'm getting an idea, but I don't see the larger picture. Someday it'll make sense. But maybe not. Maybe not on this earth. Maybe not until we get to heaven. Why do I say that? Well, I look back at Moses. Yeah, Moses sinned. But wh- why... What larger thing was God doing that he didn't allow Moses to take the people into the promised land? Maybe it was so, so uh, Joshua would stand up and become the leader. You know, Joshua was kind of timid. Maybe Moses had to be out of the way for that. I don't know. That's possible. But why? I don't know. Why, why was his plan frustrated? I don't really know. Why David? Why wasn't David able to build the temple? That's what he wanted to do. That's honoring to God. And he wasn't allowed because he had shed blood. Well, lots of, you know, everyone else had shed blood. Why, what's the deal with him? We don't know. And Solomon builds it. Well, maybe, you know, Solomon had greater wisdom and maybe he had access to greater resources and maybe, I don't know, maybe his fame helped to, I don't know. I mean, I have ideas, but I don't really know. And this is 3,000 years later we're looking at this. So when a situation happens in our life and it's difficult and we don't understand it and we're wondering, what is God doing? And maybe it's painful. Maybe it's the loss of someone. Maybe it's, maybe it's just a job change. Maybe it's economic situation right now. I don't know. Difficulty. And you're wondering, I don't get it. I just don't get it. In the end, you may see, you may look back after a few years and say, all right, God was doing a huge thing and here's what it was. But even if you look back at the end of your life and you're thinking, I have no clue why he did that. No idea. That is fine. Because he, God demonstrates in each of these other stories that he is faithful. Even if we can't see his faithfulness, even if we don't understand that for what it is, he is still faithful. And he's still doing this larger work, whether we see it or not. And in the end, when we're in glory, we will be able to see it then. We'll be able to see the whole thing fully. He's trustworthy. I often remind myself of two things. First is that God is sovereign. He's, he's, he's in control of everything. And nothing happens to me that doesn't first get his okay. He's sovereign. And I can trust him because of that. But the second one to me is is almost as important. The two work together so well. He's not just sovereign, he's good. He's not some chess master who moved a pawn into place regardless of what's going to happen to the pawn because he has this larger thing in mind. He's good too. He's good. He took these men through difficult situations and he blessed their lives. He's good and I can trust him. He's not just doing stuff with me to be mean to me because he can, because he's sovereign. And hey, that's fun. That's not the way he is. He's good, and he loves me. And the sovereign things he does in my life are always with his goodness in mind. He's good, and he causes all things to work together for good. 
for those of us who love God and are called according to his purpose. And so because of that, because I can be so encouraged of that, I'm ecstatic to trust him with my life and with my future. I'm ecstatic to trust him with my family's future. And I don't have to be worried. And I don't have to be scared. And I don't have to be disappointed that my dream was broken, that everything I thought was going to work out didn't work out. I can trust him. And I still may not understand it while I'm going through it. God, what are you going to do? I have no idea, but I can't wait to see it because it's God doing it. And that's the situation that we find ourselves in. We're, you know, we're back here at Parkside and we want to pursue serving with you guys here. And this is where I'm from. I started coming to church here two weeks after I became a Christian. And uh, that was 1992, March. I guess I came here in April of 1992. I started coming here. This, these are my roots. And what drew me into the ministry in the first place, humanly speaking, was when I saw Bob Burroughs and John Duncan studying the Bible so they could teach Bible and disciple people around them. And I thought, I can't think of anything better to do with my life. And I've, I've pursued ministry from then. And now to contemplate the possibility of coming back here and being with you all and serving in a similar capacity here is exciting to me. It's just exciting. And I never would have arranged it and planned it out myself again because I had my eyes fixed, my face like flint, towards Russia. That's, that, that's the direction I was looking. And it got, took God taking me through this difficult situation and taking my family through this difficult situation to where we would be open to getting an email from Woody. And now it makes sense. All of a sudden I can see something different going on that I didn't see before. So I, I just want to leave you with that encouragement that if you know God, you can trust him and it, it's hard at times. Your pain, whatever you're going through, agony, I don't know it and probably can't relate to it, but he does and he can. And he is there. He's sovereign and he's good. And for those of you who don't know him yet and you're thinking, I've heard about Abraham, uh, but I don't know much about any of these other guys. I've heard of David. Don't know much about what's going on there. You can trust your life to him. You can give him your life, and he knows what he's doing with it. I'll tell you what, when I was 18 years old, before I heard the gospel, and strange enough, that's the first time I remember hearing the gospel was when I was 18, I had no clue what I was doing in my life. No clue, no idea. Not, not even just what I was going to do for work, well, what kind of career I was going to have, but certainly I had no clue what I was supposed to do with my soul. I didn't have any idea what was going to happen after death. I had no idea about that. Until Paul Sabino shared with me, there's a God who's sovereign over that. There's a God who offers hope for you. He offers salvation. He offers that you can have forgiveness for your sins that you already know you have. And because of them, you stand guilty before him. He offers you forgiveness in the person of his son. And you may not understand the difficulties in life and you may not understand why there's evil in the world and you may not understand why hard things have happened in your life, but he is sovereign and you can trust him and you can trust him with your future, with your family, with your life, and you can trust him with your soul. More than you can trust him with your soul. That's the only real option open for you because to maintain that death grip on your own soul is in the end going to have you separated from God. There, there, there is such a thing as a hell and it's real and it's literal and it's conscious and it's eternal and uh, I, I wouldn't want anyone to go there you can trust God with your soul and Jesus died on a cross to pay 
everything that we owe because of the sin in our lives so that we could have that gift, so it could be imputed to us, so we could have his righteousness and we could be with him in heaven, not because of what we've done, but because of faith in Jesus and what Jesus has done. So, that's, that's the story for the last 15 years and what God has done, been doing in us. And I want to uh, just finish with that and just encourage you guys that he's trustworthy. And I, we've read emails, and I don't want to bring up pain, but we've been reading emails about um, what some of you folks have gone through, and I can't fathom it, but he can. And so I know that a lot of you have seen him faithful through some impossible things. He is faithful, and he's good. Let's pray. Lord, you are faithful, and uh, you are good. And you saved me before I had even given real thought to you. You reached down and, and plucked me out of uh, a pointless and destructive existence that was going to end in, in hell for me. You are good, Lord, and we trust you. Thank you for these men. The faithfulness you showed in each of their lives, you had a larger purpose. And we know that for our, our own lives, the Beheimers, that the things that we went through in Turkey and in Russia and all that, in the end, it fits into your larger plan, and we look forward to seeing what that larger plan looks like. But in the interim, before we know, we trust you and we love you. And I pray that everyone here would do the same, would just trust you with their future and be able to let go of, of the fear and the anxiety and the death grip that they have on their own destiny, that they could entrust it to you. Thank you for Parkside and for her faithfulness to us. Thank you for the leadership here and for these folks who are, uh, in a lot of ways, family. Pray for your blessing on them. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.